I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Speaking of the dignity of humanity, even right-wing Republicans are appalled by cruelty to animals. But when it comes to people, under this president, cruelty has become policy. Now, that seems like a stretch, doesn't it? No one is intentionally cruel except maybe sociopaths. But there's no lack of evidence that this administration operates with the understanding that cruelty can be a useful tool when it comes to protecting America from terrorists, and they have been using that tool. The most obvious case of uh, cruelty is torture. Though all experts in the military and intelligence fields insist torturing prisoners, possibly terrorists, is extremely counterproductive. Trump, of course, knows better than they do, right? Even though it does not work, he said simply, torture works. As a kid growing up in the 1950s and 60s, when many of the oppressed of the world looked to the United States as a beacon of hope against torture and cruelty, I never would have imagined we'd become known to the world as practitioners of cruelty and that the president of the United States would be a cruelty advocate. Unthinkable. But here we are. Cruelty is policy against perhaps a million people who live in America. People who, for reasons not of their own making, are terrorized by the prospect of federal agents coming to their door late at night and taking some members of the family. It might be one thing if the practice of cruelty against humans produced the desired results, if it somehow made us a safer country. But despite the insistence of the president, cruelty does not make us safer. Whipping up the fear of the other is a standard ploy of wannabe dictators throughout history, and clearly Trump thrives on it. As our return guest Arnold Skip Isaacs suggests in a new article on Tom Dispatch, the results domestically when it comes to U.S. policy toward migrants, legal or not, the displaced and refugees could hardly be meaner or uglier. It's a record of vindictiveness right down to mistreatment of even the smallest children at our southern border. Why is this happening and what can we do? That's what we're going to talk about on today's Keeping Democracy Alive. Skip Isaacs, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for inviting me. Skip Isaacs is a journalist and Tom Dispatch regular based in Maryland who has written widely on refugee and immigration issues. He's the author of From Troubled Lands, Listening to Pakistani and Afghan Americans in Post-9-11 America, and two books relating to the Vietnam War. His website is www.arnoldisaacs.net. His article that we're going to be talking about is titled A Cruel War on Immigrants. Trump's Policies Hurt People Instead of Fixing the System. Well, Skip, as you point out, the president's obsession with the wall to stop allegedly dangerous immigrants has dominated the headlines 
and has partially obscured how the lives of hundreds of thousands, you say, whose, quote, actions are not outside the law, but are in the United States legally, some with permanent resident status and others on, tem- on a temporary or provisional basis. What do you mean? How have their lives been affected? Well, there are various categories of people who are here legally whose lives have been affected by Trump policies. Uh, One big group, which estimates are around 700,000 or 750,000, are the so-called dreamers. These are people, that's a familiar term by now, who have been brought here as, were brought here as children uh, by undocumented parents. And they've been protected, although provisionally, since 2012, uh, by the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, known as DACA, which was an executive order from President Obama, which Trump has sought to repeal. Uh, Trump's action has been held up by court challenges, so it's now pending. So that's one big group of people who are here legally, although not permanently, uh, but who were threatened by uh, Trump's policies. Another big group, another 250,000 or 300,000, are people who've been living here for some, in some cases for a several couple of decades right. uh, with, quote, temporary protected status. And th- those, those are groups that are allowed to stay in the United States because of catastrophes or other dangerous conditions in their countries. Mm-hmm. And the administration is trying to end that uh, program with a succession of Directive country by country directives ending that protection, and then a third group uh, who are potentially harmed are legal immigrants who are applying for green cards for employment, uh, the right to employment, mm-hmm. uh, who face much more restrictive rules that are proposed. Now, these rules are not yet in effect, but they're proposed by the Homeland Security Department. There's no exact number on how many might. Uh, fail to meet the new requirements. But you have about a million green card applications every year. So even if it's a minority that don't uh, qualify under the changed rules, it could still be a pretty large number. And then one last category that uh, not in the U.S., lawfully or unlawfully, but trying to enter legally, are the refugees who would qualify or in many cases have already qualified for resettlement, but have not been able to come because the president is sharply, who's, who's, who has the authority to set a cap on the number of refugee admissions, and he has sharp, sharply cut that cap. Interesting. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm trying to picture, you know, those of us who are listening, who are, you know, been here for a while, largely white, non-recent immigrants. I, I wonder what how they can understand what life is like for people who, say, for example, are interested in applying for a green card and how how suddenly frightened they may be, even though they've done nothing wrong. What do you think the, the, the life is like for them and their families, uh, just uh, not knowing, and how different it is from it was before Trump uh, acceded to the White House? Well, I'm sure that his policies have produced a great deal of increased anxiety, uh, both among those who are directly affected by these policy changes, like people who were expecting to apply or were thinking about or looking forward to applying for a green card. Right. Uh, and But I think, I'm sure, actually, or 
sure, but I would certainly guess that many, many more immigrants who may not be directly affected by these particular policy changes are have living with more concern, more anxiety, more uncertainty about the future, uh, more doubts about how they really stand and whether they are really accepted and whether their lives in these in this country can be are stable. And I wonder, you know, if they come back from work, you know, say they're they're doing their job, if you know, there's there's concern that they might be swept up and we've seen cases like this where people, you know, are just suddenly swept up and and that's it and they're they're gone and uh, you know, the legal process is is rather difficult. I, I, it, it's, it's appalling to me. And we talked about the dreamers, young people who have grown up here, whose parents may have brought them here illegally. Wasn't there a almost successful push in recent years to help the dreamers? I seem to remember that had a lot of bipartisan support against what you say was widely perceived to be inhumane and unfair to penalize young people because of their parents' actions. What was its... It was looking pretty good for a while there. What happened when Trump came to power with regard to the the Dreamers? Well, the, the efforts or the proposals, bill, congressional action, proposed congressional action to protect the Dreamers actually goes back quite a long time, a dozen years or so. I don't think it was always called the Dream Act, right. which is the, the name that was given to the later versions of this law. And those would go farther than the executive order that President Obama issued, because at least in some of those versions, including, I believe, the most recent one, uh, the the bills would create a path for citizenship. Right. So full permanent legal residence and the right to apply for citizenship when they meet the other requirements. Mm-hmm. And that's not in the executive order. Mm. The president doesn't have power to do that. That would be require a change in law. Uh I guess, I mean, I, there, there was, these bills going back over the last 10, 12 years have had a fair amount of bipartisan support. Right. They've been supported by Democrats and, and sponsored by Democrats and Republicans. And they've foundered on, you know, the sort of the growing politicization of immigration issues. Uh, I believe that I haven't followed the details of every single bill, uh, but I suppose that what's happened under Trump is that he's been trying to use that, uh, the dreamer protection, as a chip, as a bargaining chip to get other policies like the wall, uh-huh. primarily, and, and other repressive policies that he wants, and that's been the sticking point. And you use the word repressive, and, you know, that's a strong word, but it's not at all an exaggeration. I think, you know, once people look at what we're talking about here and what's been done, it has been repressive. It's been kind of cruel. And you also talked about temporary protected status. A bit more into that. What is that and how many people face possible deportation if the Trump administration is successful in terminating that temporary protected status. Well, that that's a fairly complicated procedure. Temporary protected status is allows people to stay here uh, if conditions in their home countries are have been found by the by the director of homeland security or the yeah. secretary of homeland security uh, 
to be too dangerous for them to go home. And these these findings are, are issued country by country. So the, the status applies to immigrants from a given country uh, who were here when, for example, a terrible earthquake in El Salvador back in 2001 and somewhat similar circumstance in Haiti in 2010, right. uh, also an earthquake, uh, disrupted lives in those countries to the point where it would really be inhumane to make people go back. So altogether, so the, the, the status comes according to the country of origin. Mm-hmm. And each country is, found, is, is the subject on the list for, through a separate finding by the Secretary of Homeland Security. And they have expiration dates, uh, which can be extended and have been in some cases. I, you know, every every so often they're reviewed and extended. Mm-hmm. So at the moment there are there are something like, I believe three or three hundred thousand people in this country with this temporary protected status, which in which they can work, they can you know they have they they don't have permanent residence, right? But they do have employment uh, and they can travel, they can leave the country and come back. Uh, so I I sense not all of those well. The, the, the Homeland Security over the last two years has issued a series of orders, successive orders, setting expiration dates for residents from particular countries. The, the, the most biggest number from El Salvador is about mm-hmm. 200, almost 200,000 Salvadorans are in this country and have been for years in many cases under that uh, TPS status. And, and I sense a large degree of arbitrariness on the part of the Department of Homeland Security in that if it's a friendly government and you know El Salvador now is is not the same as when Reagan was in office then it was a friendly government to the Reagan administration it was terribly repressive I mean they had death squads and you know so that's different now but I wonder can the Department of Homeland Security be influenced by whether or not it's a, you know, a good buddy of our President Trump or not. And, and that, you know, if, if, if it's a government that Trump likes, well, it'd be, you know, sort of difficult to say that uh, these people have, you know, reason to flee these awful governments. Well, I'm, uh, I, I actually can't answer that question. Sure. I don't know what the political considerations would be. The, the grounds for declaring temporary status temporary protection for residents, immigrants from a given country, are slayed out in the, in the, in the law. Uh-huh. And they are, you know, an armed conflict or some big environmental disaster or other extraordinary and temporary conditions. I don't think that in this particular case, political repression has been a factor. That would be, that would apply to other certainly other immigration categories, but I'm not sure it applies to TPS or to the expirations that uh, that DHS has proclaimed, which have been held up like the uh, end of the Dreamer mm-hmm. protection or DACA protection. They, these have been challenged in court, and courts have stayed those directives, so they're not taking effect yet. But if they go into effect, if as scheduled, uh, Salvadorans would lose their protection, I think, in September this year. Another 50,000 or so from Haiti would lose it Mm. in July. 
this year, so fairly imminently, if the courts rule in the in the government's favor or if those temporary stays are, are overturned somewhere, uh, the, the consequences could be pretty pretty soon. And one of the, the things we all hear about what they are fleeing is drug gangs. You know, people who live in poverty uh, turn, you know, figure out ways to make money, and there's a lot of money to be made from meeting the demand for illegal drugs from people in the United States. And so you know, I can imagine you know, quite a few drug gangs in Mexico and all of Central America, or different parts of Central America, uh, that the people would be fleeing. And uh, I, I would hope that that would be something that can be uh, objectively measured and, and that, that people would, I mean, because who wants, I mean, going back to a place where, you know, your relatives have been killed and threatened by drug gangs, uh, that that's pretty uh, scary. And to threaten people with that, I would think, could go under the category cruelty. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. We are Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Skip Isaacs, and we are talking about uh, a cruel war on immigrants. Trump's policies hurt people instead of fixing the system. Now, I remember, I mean, Trump is, is obsessively focused on his wall, obviously, uh, during the negotiations for his desired $5.7 million, he offered to extend DACA or TPS for another three years. What, the, what would that have meant for the lives of those hundreds of thousands of people? Why was that? How, how would that have played out, do you think? Well, let me, first to go back to the question you asked just before the break, the drug gangs and crime and fleeing uh, dangers local conditions like that, that applies to asylum seekers. That's a different category from the oh, temporary okay. protected status. So those are two different issues here. Uh-huh. And the administration has certainly made it more difficult and is trying in all kinds of ways to, to raise the barriers to getting asylum hmm. uh, in all kinds of ways, including not letting people even come to the places where they, where they, where they under the law, and under law and, and international law, are entitled to come and, and ask for asylum. And the administration is trying to make that very difficult. That's a separate okay. issue from the temporary TPS. Well, I, on that issue, I, I, I've gotten the impression, correct me if I'm wrong, that the caravan, the scary big, huge caravan coming to invade the United States, at the border, they're trying to do it legally and apply for asylum, but... In recent years, they have not been even allowed to begin the process to apply for asylum. Is did I is that correct? And what does that do to the people there? Well, <laughs> uh, I mean, this is this is a somewhat separate subject that I did not cover in this particular article, and have not looked at as carefully as I have some of these other issues. Oh, go ahead. Uh, the, the asylum process is that if somebody gets to this country, legally or illegally, and then they, they go to the, the closest legal entry point, right. or the authorities, wherever, you know, whatever authorities they can reach and apply for asylum, then they are supposed to be given time, not, not immediately turned away, but mm. given time to make the application and have it ruled on. Uh, then those numbers have spiked enormously in the last couple of years. 
Right. Uh, so there's a huge backlog. And a big issue there is whether people under detention are under detention in these detention centers while they're waiting for a decision or whether they can be, in effect, paroled out to relatives or some other status while they wait for a ruling on their application for asylum. And the administration has, as I say, done all sorts of things to make that more difficult uh, over in, since this administration took power. People everywhere... Back to the question that you oh, yeah, asked yeah. a minute ago oh, sure, sure. about this temporary reprieve that Trump did offer mm-hmm. during the, last, the, the shutdown. Uh, and I believe that that is not in... Right, it's not in current... Uh, they, they, this, the, the, the compromise deal that presumably Congress is going to pass sometime today, uh, protections for doc, for the DREAMers or temporary protected status uh, holders, recipients. I, 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 and if it's not, it's not in, as far as I can tell, it's not in that, uh, the, right. new, the law that will right. avert the next shutdown, assuming Trump signs it. Uh, and I suppose what that means is that Congress will probably take up DACA separately. And it remains to be seen whether that'll be a temporary extension or a more permanent solution such as been proposed but not so far passed in the DREAM Act. Well, what? Uh, if, it's, if it's permanent, I mean, if, if there is a, a bill for a permanent uh, solution to the DACA uh, issue, uh, it, uh, I guess it remains to be seen whether Trump would go along, though he has made conciliatory comments about that in the past. And if it's temporary, you know, it would give even three years, that would be welcome, uh, an immediate relief, but it wouldn't solve the problem or right. remove the threat, the ultimate threat hanging over their lives. And one other point that's worth making sure. is that uh, if Trump believes, or did for a little while in January yeah, anyway, yeah, sure that letting the Dreamers and TPS recipients stay for another three years wouldn't endanger public safety or damage other national interests, uh, then why did he want to expel them in the first place? <laughs> well, we can guess. We can guess. They are of a darker color, let's face it. And I can't help but think that if these people were Scandinavian, blonde-haired, and blue-eyed, it wouldn't be a problem or an emergency. That's just my speculation. And, and in terms of of, of cruelty, one of the first things I think that, that jumped out at people in recent times is the caging of little children. What what the heck is that all about? And, you know, it just it is appalling to people throughout America and the world that the United States was doing that. What part of the process is that? What What allows the administration to do that? I mean, they have argued that Oh, they're just enforcing the laws that were already there. I wonder, what do you know about about the caging of children and separating them, perhaps permanently, from their families? Well, I, I suppose that, uh, or at least it seemed, at, especially when that became a headline story a few months ago, uh, before the policy was caused such an outcry that even this administration reversed it. I mean, I think that one big motive was simply to deter people from coming across with their families. Using fear, of course. You know, to, 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 to show them that the consequences would be, uh, would be severe. Mm. Uh, and Trump has said, 
over and over that uh, you know he not, not only wants to stop illegal immigration, which he quite exaggeratedly de- uh, describes as a, a mortal threat to American security, which is rapist and really drug not dealers. true. No. Well, true. Also, to he wants to cut back on legal immigration. Right. And I think all of all of these sort of visible. Uh, uh, repressive acts are in part designed to discourage people, to deter people, to make people decide not to try to come here. Yeah, I don't think that's working so well. It you know it it seems that people are are still coming because they have such horrible times back where they came from. And exactly, you know, <laughs> you know they're still going to try. And yeah, Trump has occasionally not told the truth. I frankly don't think he knows the difference between truth and lies. He never has had to, but that's that's a separate discussion. Trump has spun the yarn that immigrants are a drain on the system, on public funds. And it seems that that is resonating with a lot of Americans. They think, yeah, they're taking our jobs. They're t- they're using, you know, the, the social safety net. You point out that, quote, under the proposed drastic expansion of guidelines, immigrants could also be penalized for using food stamps, Medicaid, or various housing assistance programs, end of quote. I can imagine a lot of people agreeing with that change. Are they not a drain on the system? What is wrong with that picture? Well, those, uh, those consequences would come from these new rules for getting a green card. Uh, if if one, one condition, one, one qualification for getting a green card is to somebody not be, quote, a public charge, not be dependent on government benefits right. uh, to make a living in this country. Sure. And in the past, that's been applied to, and, so, and immigrants who apply for green cards could not for, for many years uh, be on welfare or get Social Security, uh, dis- disability payments, that kind of thing. So they've been applied to direct income uh, support programs. But now, the, the, under these new rules, which are not in effect, they've been proposed and they're now being reviewed, uh, they, they would apply this public charge standard to Medicaid, green stamps, uh, food stamps, uh, housing, you know, Section 8 housing, that kind of thing, which up to now, legal immigrants have been able to use if they qualify just as, as American citizens would use. Uh, as to being a drain on the system, there were fairly early in the administration, uh, the White House asked at the White House request, Department of Health and Human Services did a study, uh, quite a detailed study, uh, which showed. Let me find my notes here. Uh, sure. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. We are keeping democracy alive. We're talking about cruelty toward. People who want to be in America and, and breathe a little uh, air of freedom. Our guest is uh, Skip Isaacs, who's written about it. Did you find what you're looking for? Yes. Uh, this is specifically on refugees, not on all immigrants. Right. But they, but the, the report, and refugees, I think, get a little bit more use of public program, support programs than immigrants in general do. Uh, so actually the expenses, the government expense to the government uh, is a, is a little higher, but this HHS study right. uh, concluded that over a ten-year period from 2005 to, through 2014, uh, refugees 
paid $63 billion more in taxes than they received in taxpayer-funded government assistance. As I say, that, that assistance would be higher in, in terms of refugees than it, for refugees than it would be for other immigrants. Uh, but So that kind of destroys the argument that refugees have been a drain on the economy. They've, been, they've contributed to the economy. And this was a quite a, a long and detailed report. But the higher-ups at HHS refused to send that, over, that report over to the White House, and they sent another one. Instead, much shorter one that listed the the expense, but not the tax payment. <laughs> so wow. they they showed only one half of the balance sheet, and that presumably helped make the administration or supported the administration's case or the case that Trump's advisors wanted to make. Right, we've heard the uh, expression: "There's lying by commission and lying by omission." They certainly omitted that for sure. Um, w- one problem, one probable outcome of changes with regard to uh, uh, immigrants' access to uh, the social safety net, one probable outcome is that women would have a harder time. Why is that? Because there's an analysis that was done of, the, the, again, these proposed rules. They're not in effect yet, although a lot of immigrants are, are already staying away from benefits that they would that they are entitled to and that they certainly need but they're just afraid that it might jeopardize their chance to get uh, a green card when they apply uh-huh. uh, and obviously that affects people who are farther down the economic level who are already having the most difficult times and there was an, an analysis from the migration policy institute uh, pointed out that among those groups that would be more adversely affected, women are less likely to be employed than men, uh, live in larger households, and have lower incomes. So they would be more likely to f- fail to meet this test of not being a public charge. They would have more need for benefits and therefore more right. likely to uh, fail not to, to not to qualify for a green card under these new rules. And w- one thing we've talked about somewhat is, you know, one of the effects is that there's a great fear among largely Hispanic immigrants of raids by ICE and other agencies. Fathers who have worked in America for years supporting their families have been whisked away and deported. It's, it's amazing. I never thought I'd see anything like that. As you say, an unknown but significant number of low-income immigrants to for, uh, causing them to forego food stamps, Medicaid, and other benefits, assistance they are legally entitled to and badly need, but fear might jeopardize their chances for lawful permanent resident. Talk about that, if you would, please. Well, that's, that's what I was just saying, that, that uh, if these new rules proposed by Homeland Security go into effect and raise significantly raise the barriers for getting a green card, uh, then if, if people have used these public benefits, in other words, if I go in to apply for a green card, uh, it would work against me if I had used food stamps or take, taken Medicaid oh, and that wow. kind of thing, huh. which it doesn't now. I mean, that, that is, that, that's not the, 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 the regulation now. But if I'm thinking about this now, and I I'm, and I'm aware of these new regulations, or these proposed new regulations, and and, it, and I'm worried that they will count against me uh, when I go to apply, uh, then even if I need it pretty badly, 
I'm going to, I'm not going right. to, no, there's no way to know how many people have already made that decision, but it's an obvious, uh, it, it, you can't avoid, you can't not think that there are fairly large numbers of people who are already in that position. I wonder what, how that can be defended, what the benefits could be portrayed as of, of making people live in fear like that. I just, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And, you know, unless we're uh, Native Americans, all of us pretty much are descendants of immigrants. Trump supporters insist that oh, it's different because our ancestors did it legally. Now, I don't know about what it was like, you know, in the 1890s and 1900. I, I don't expect there was as much uh, screening process then. You know, I've gotten the impression that people are trying to enter legally, but are specifically and only recently shut off from even entering the screening process. Did most of our ancestors come here what they would call legally? I don't think there was even a real clear process at the time. Maybe there was. I, I don't know about such things. Well, you know, I, I don't actually know exactly how the bureaucratic process worked. Uh, the, there was a big re- reaction against immigration. Oh, yes. Uh, Racism back then, too. <laughs> in, in, you know, around the period of the First World War. Uh, and then the, at that time, there was a lot of opposition. R- racism was more openly expressed then than it is now. Yes. Uh, so there was the the uh, first big immigration law in the 20th century, anyway, was the Immigration Act of 1924, I think, hmm. uh, which absolutely excluded immigration immigrants from Asia. And it set up a, a different pattern. I, I don't know exactly what sure. the process was or even what the laws were before then, but obviously there was a huge wave of immigration in the 1880s and 90s and yeah. 1910s, 0s and 10s. Right, right. And that caused, and the, the, the percentage of foreign-born was about like it is now, I think. Mm. Uh, and similar to now, there was a big reaction against it. Uh-huh. And at that time, in the 1924 Act, uh, they set quota, national quotas for different right. countries. And the quotas were based on the representation in the population at the time, so, uh-huh. which was obviously more white Western <laughs> European. Yeah. So those country immigrants from Britain or Germany had a much higher quota, and immigrants from uh, Africa or Asia had almost none. Mm. Yeah, it's a long tradition. It is. Now, supporters of of the president and and his policies with regard to this stuff insist that we need a better vetting process, that it's currently way too loose. Our vetting process is just too open and too loose. What's the reality here? Well, if you're talking specifically about vetting, usually that word is used in terms of vetting refugees uh, for possible terrorists coming in. Okay. And this is almost a completely fabricated danger. Uh, we've admitted something like uh, a million refugees in the last, you know, since 2001, uh, and almost none of them. There's almost no case. In fact, there is there is not a single verified case, proven case, where a refugee snuck into the country intending to commit a terrorist act and then, then committed some act, some violent act in the United States. No American has been killed for more than 40 years. No American has been killed by anyone who entered 
this country as a refugee. And the refugee screening process is by far the most arduous and the longest of any category of immigrants. Uh, refugees wait two, three, four years both going through background checks and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and the record of, of preventing terrorists from getting and in, sneaking into the country uh, is not quite 100 percent, which you wouldn't expect in in with numbers that that big. Right. But the numbers, the failures are negligible, and the danger is practically invisible. And no terrorist in his right mind trying to sneak into the country would try to get through as a refugee because he'd be sitting in a camp for three years waiting. Yeah. Now, Trump recently went to El Paso and made some claims that were absolutely without foundation. Everybody in El Paso knew it about crime going down after a wall was built there. Just total, absolute nonsense and just lies. And he's he's also, he, he loves to use fear to scare people. And he's talked about some cases of, of some uh, refugees or immigrants, people from you know, the others from South and, you know, Central America and Mexico doing some bad things, tying people up, duct taping their mouth, raping them and stuff like that. I, one never knows. I mean, every now and then there might be a grain of truth in what he says. What, what do we know about that? Is, I mean, you know, he's, he's saying that all, the, as he said when he first announced in 2015, they're murderers, they're drug dealers, they're rapists. You're, you're saying that there have not been acts of terrorism by uh, these these groups of people, but what about you know just simple uh, crime like that? I mean, they're in, in comparison, of course, to the regular full population. It's as you say, negligible. I'm sure. Well, I, the terrorism argument has been used, I think, primarily against refugees from the Middle East and from the Arab world. Oh, and they're uh, supposedly hiding amongst Asia and Muslims, and and sure. this is sort of related to uh, Trump's policy announced during his campaign of completely shutting off uh, Muslims from immigrating to this country, which was clearly not going to be <laughs> considered constitutional. So it, it, it has been enforced in a sort of indirect way and after several attempts. Uh, so and that's where the terrorism issue comes in. Uh -huh, sure. The crime issue uh, that he's used, I think, has mainly been directed at the immigrants from Latin America. Yes. And what he claims to be the dangers of uh, people coming across the southern border. Uh, this is also not something that I have done any extensive research on, but as, as I understand it, almost all studies have shown that immigrants, both legal and, and illegal immigrants, do not have a higher rate of criminality than the native-born population, and I think in many categories have a have a have less crime, less likely to be criminals than native-born Americans. Well, I I've been to uh, naturalization ceremonies and people. I mean, that's different. That's becoming a citizen, but obviously the incentive for an, an immigrant, a refugee whose legal status might be questionable, um, you want to keep your head down pretty much. That's just, you know, it's common sense, really, and, and doing these crimes and compared to uh, the, the larger population. Well, the law says that, you know, if you're an immigrant, even if you've become a citizen, 
uh, you can forfeit that citizenship and you can forfeit your legal permanent residence uh, sure. uh, if you commit if you commit a crime. That's one of the conditions. Yeah. So that's where a lot of these raids and deportations come in. Some guy who was convicted of drunk driving 15 years ago, legally subject to being deported. Uh, that's always been the case, and they've and they've deported a lot of people. Uh, the the usual argument is that this is, or at least this is, I think, widely viewed as more legitimate if you're talking about violent crime, and less legitimate if you're talking about victimless crimes or mm. crimes that occurred many many years ago and that someone has lived a straight life yeah. since then. But for example, they're deporting refugee refugees from who came from Vietnam 25, 30 years ago who had some kind of criminal activity. And all of a sudden, after living stable lives for you know many, many years and in a community that's done pretty well economically, uh, as the Vietnamese have, and the numbers aren't large, but they're, they're, they, that's a kind of a symbol of what they've, what, what they've been doing. I just I wonder what the argument is for such policies. And, and, and you write, you know, in line with, with that question, President Trump's refugee policy offers perhaps the single best case study of how far he is, he and his team have steered away from compassion. Now, some people on the right would say, oh, compassion, you guys are just softies. But you go on to say, using the law that lets the president set a ceiling for the admission of refugees, Trump has sharply reduced that annual cap, bringing it to by far the lowest in 40 years. And you write that... uh, in 2018, only uh, 22,491 refugees were admitted to the country, fewer than half the number authorized, and that that is considerably lower than any year since Ronald Reagan entered the White House in 1981. What, what do you make of all that? And how, how, did, how is that a divergence from compassion? And how, how could things be more compassionate and you know, is compassion just a, a liberal, you know, keep the doors open and let everybody in kind of thing? A lot of questions there. Well, nobody, nobody could describe refugee policy over the last 40 years. That, that number is significant because the current refugee law uh, dates back to 1980, so 39 years this year. Uh, and no one would describe it as an open door or indiscriminate. As I said before, the, you know, the ref- screening of refugees is the most arduous of any immigra- immigrant category. The numbers have ranged quite a bit. Uh, they've averaged, I think, something like fifty or 60,000 a year over that period. There's been ups and downs, some years higher and some years lower, Not although almost no years lower than that uh, until now. Uh, but those numbers are a very small fraction of the numbers of refugees around the world who would qualify for resettlement, let alone the numbers who are not legal. The legal definition of internationally, the legal definition of a refugee is someone who has left his own country and is uh, taking refuge in another country. And there are now about 25 million people like that around the world. And then there's another 40 million or so, more than 40 million. The total number, I think, is now up to 68 million, or was the last time the UN uh, issued a yearly summary of people displaced in their own countries. 
who, from from a practical point of view, are facing the same uh, agony and the same loss and the same suffering as those outside the country. But they're not internationally; they're not legally considered refugees, so they're not on the list for to, to be to be accepted for resettlement in the United States. Refugee first has to be certified as a refugee by the UN. And they have certified, as I say, about 25 million people, but only a million or so of those are classed as eligible for resettlement. So it's already a pretty small fraction. And, you know, I, I, I like to look at, you know, as a former policymaker myself in little old New Hampshire uh, in the state Senate, you, know, you want to look at what works. What's going to achieve the goal? If there's a problem, what's the real solution? People, you know, for right or wrong, would prefer to stem the flow of people coming in here. But I, I have to wonder about, isn't there, wouldn't it be more effective to address the what causes people to leave? I mean, the U.S., let's face it, has been imperialistic, you know, to argue against that. It'd be silly, in my opinion. But the U.S. has often created some of the conditions from which so many people flee in both the Middle East and Central America. You know, repressive governments uh, and, and, and war situations in Iraq, in Syria, and places like that. Wouldn't it be possible to, I mean, I would think, I mean, this is just my feeling, that, that addressing that really would more effectively uh, deal with the any kind of refugee or immigrant problem. Your thoughts, Skip? Well, I, I think if you look historically, obviously the U.S. was not the only, and U.S. actions were not the no, only. No, of course factor. not. No, no. But the U- U.S. actions and policies certainly bear some considerable responsibility for uh, blowing up the Middle East region, the whole region of the Middle East, and generating this cycle of conflicts and upheavals that have sent, you know, caused a huge refugee crisis and millions and millions and millions of people into uh, fleeing their homes in Syria and Iraq and and Yemen and a lot of other places, only a tiny fraction of whom are ever involved and ever get as far as being considered for resettlement in the United States. So, yeah, I mean, if the U.S. had not invaded Iraq, possibly the (laughs) refugee situation in the Middle East would not be as bad as it is, although it's kind of hard to single out one thread and try to try to conduct or construct a counterfactual history and similarly in central america going back over into the 80s you know many many years uh, you have american complicity complicity in in quite uh brutal yeah dictatorships in that region uh, and instability and that you know that that is part of one piece of the story that has led to the current situation uh, in those countries. Uh, so, whether it's within the Americans' power to really bring stability in, in a significant way and and change the conditions that produce all these refugees, I think is kind of questionable. Uh, but cutting off aid to Central America, no, which he t- as Trump has suggested a couple of times, that's the worst thing. Uh, would be, I think, no. Every everybody that I've ever encountered who's knowledgeable about it would say that that's exactly the wrong thing to do. And you know, we have learned. <laughs> I've learned personally from many, many, many years of witnessing this kind of 
programs in a lot of different places, and, and refugees too. Uh, figuring out a, a good way to change the social structures and economic structures and the, the economic lives of another country is not so simple. And just sending them a bunch, sending them money and calling it foreign aid doesn't necessarily yeah. achieve that purpose. <laughs> but that is the direction. Uh, trying to use those these aid funds intelligently and, and productively, obviously to the extent that it can improve conditions, uh, would would help uh, solve the immigration problem, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's pretty clear. I remember, you know, foreign aid under uh, uh, the U.S. Uh, friendly government of Nicaragua many years ago, Samosa, a lot of foreign aid went there, and Samosa just pocketed it. They didn't, after a big earthquake, he didn't build up anything. The, the town, uh, Managua, was just left in rubble. And he uh, profited nicely. So, you know, foreign aid has to, we got to take a look at that for sure. And I, I wonder again about compassion versus, you know, being tough. You argue that there should be room to consider broader questions and ask whether the enforcement of the law is in conflict with other human values. How, how realistic, and what do you mean by that, and how realistic might that be? Or, or is it just, you know, compassion is just too soft, that is not what we need right now. But talk about the realism of that kind of approach, do you think, in terms of effectiveness? Uh, I, you've heard the expression compassion fatigue, people getting sorry. Uh, <laughs> they've, 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 they've expended too much compassion. Oh, my. I hadn't heard that. Uh, I remember, I can't remember who it was who said it, but somebody who said, I don't know what they got, what, how much compassion they've used that they got this tired about, because I don't see it. Jeez, no. I mean, the idea that American immigration policy has been sort of compass- too compassionate, uh, I think, flies in the face of uh, reality for refugees, for people seeking asylum, and so on. In a country of, you know, what, 300 million people, yeah. yeah. Uh, letting in 28,000 refugees, <laughs> less than half the number that we've let in on, on almost every other year for, for the last 40 years, uh, we could certainly help more people than that. I don't see any possible doubt that, uh, you know, 60, 50, 60, 70,000, President Obama wanted to raise the ceiling for to fiscal 2017, which began before he left office. To 110,000, and Trump's within his first week of office, I think it was, uh, cut that back to 50,000, and then has continued to reduce it in successive years, and then and then slowed down the process to the point where the numbers actually actually get here are way below even the authorized ceiling. So yeah, I don't think we're in in much danger of being too compassionate. <laughs> It does seem to be the case. And, and I have to wonder, I don't know if you can speak to this, but, you know, we've seen Trump rallies uh, where there's a lot of anger. People like cheer on violence. It's like going to a, a, a wrestling uh, match, you know, a so-called pro wrestling thing that people are just uh, frothing at the mouth, some of them. And a large portion of Trump supporters believe God made him president. I, I, I think it's unique among American presidents. I wonder about... What it is about Trump and his base that seemingly thrives on intentional cruelty. It does seem different to me. I don't know if you can speak to that, but it, it just appears to be kind of different and rather odd. 
Well, I think you mentioned before that a huge part of this reaction comes out of fear. And fear and a lot of false information. And I suppose that there are a lot of people who sincerely and you know genuinely believe uh, that a lot of refugees have come in and committed terrorist acts. Right, they've been uh, that kind of thing. Yeah, or that Muslims are trying to infiltrate the judicial system, the legal system, and put mm-hmm. the United States under Sharia law, mm-hmm. which is a preposterous. Right? Oh. I mean, <laughs> they're trying to get away from that. Most of them, or many of them, anyway. Well, I don't know about that, but uh, but I. No one, no one could take that seriously. As yeah. one uh, Pakistani American I know said, you know, we live in a country where what twenty or twenty-five percent of the population regard themselves as evangelical Christians, and they've been, you know, they they couldn't stop legalizing gay marriage. They couldn't. Uh, they haven't been able to <laughs> fifty or fifty years or whatever it's been. They haven't been able to overturn a Supreme Court decision right. on abortion. And 1% of the population belonging to a minority, an identifiable religious minority are going to somehow impose their religious law on the legal system of the United States? I mean, it's ridiculous. Seems a, little... a lot of people believe that. And there's, and there's a sort of a big megaphone that blows yeah. that stuff out at them all the time. So I suppose that that's a big part of what generates this uh, reaction against immigrants, against refugees. Well, when FDR said uh, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, boy, he knew what he was talking about. It can be and is manipulated. You spoke with Zusana Sepler, I think it is, I'm not sure, a policy and advocate, uh, advocacy associate at the Washington-based National Immigration Forum. He wrote about that. What did she mean when she said to you, the problem is in the program, not in the people? And, and what might that hold for a possible better solution? Well, she was talking specifically about the temporary protected status, which we spoke about before. And the argument, I mean, temporary does mean temporary. So no one ever gave these people permanent status. But on the other hand, they've been here under this program for, in some cases, 20 years or almost 20 years. They've created lives. They have children who were born here and are U.S. citizens and that kind of thing. So... That may not have been the original intent, and it may not be the letter of the law, and I suppose a court, when it's ruling on this kind of thing, has to consider the letter of the law. So if circumstances have changed, if the, if the conditions that uh, were the basis for giving them this temporary legal status have changed, well, and then there is a kind of a, a logical argument for saying, well, then their status should end and they should go back home. As a practical matter, that is very cruel. And I think that what Sepla was saying was that she could understand the logic, sort of the cold logic of, of this with respect to uh, temporary protective status. She wrote the fact sheet on, on that issue. Uh, but that, that doesn't have to mean that you correct things by disrupting the lives of several hundred thousand people, yeah. which accomplishes nothing, right? Uh, and that if if the program set a procedure that has kind of exhausted itself, then you fix the program. But you don't have to, it's not it's not necessary uh, to do that to the people. And I think 
the same you could say the same about illegal immigration the uh, the 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 need is to fix the system it's not to punish the people who uh in very you know for all all kinds of circumstances sure are now in this hanging in the balance uh, situation yeah. where they you know they they they're here they're living here they're working here they're obeying the law as as most of them are uh, they're having kids. They're, they're sort of developing a, a new life, contributing to society. Yeah, they are. No, yeah, contributing, and yeah, and that punishing them doesn't <laughs> fix anything. No, it doesn't. Uh, what what should? I don't know if we can answer this briefly. Members of Congress and candidates for president are any of them talking about any good ways to address the system that don't involve unnecessary cruelty? Are you hearing any positive things? Well, I, I suppose that there was a few years ago. I mean, I think that now the the word amnesty, the politicians are terrified <laughs> that, that they're accused of supporting amnesty. So I, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure there are proposals that would that would meet those meet your description. Uh, whether how much chance they have, I don't know. Yeah. But the idea of enforcing the law, you know, laws against homosexual sex. Right remained on the books that was continued to be a crime for years and years and years and years after people stopped really thinking of it as a crime yeah and stopped really enforcing those laws and people got hurt a lot of people and got hurt. yeah and you know i mean the society culture evolves and sometimes it takes the law time to catch up <laughs> and that's what we will have to i don't know whether we have the capacity to face up to that given the fear and given the political uh, manipulation that stokes those fears, uh, yeah. but I hope so. It's uh, so much easier to believe myth. Sometime than, we will. Yeah, it's much easier to believe myth than face reality and actually do something about it. Very educational here. Thank you very much. Uh, if people are interested in following your work, Tom Dispatch often has it, and your website is arnoldisaacs.net. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity to say these things. Appreciate it. We'll see what we can do. Thank you. An old song about deportees, written by Woody Guthrie. It's the Highwaymen. The crops are all in, and the peaches are rotten. The oranges are packed in the creosote dumps. They're flying them back to the Mexican border. Save all their money, then wait back again. My father's own father, he waited that river. Others before him have done just the same. They died in the hills, and they died in the valleys. Some went to heaven without any name. Goodbye to my one goodbye, Rosalita. Adios, mi amigo, Jesus Maria. You won't have a name when you ride the big airplane. All they will call you will be deportees. 